Appendix. The Welfare State on the Reservation. Editor's Note. What follows may be my father's first published article from when he was perhaps as young as 33. From textual references, it was written sometime between early 1950 and late 1952, while he still served on the reservation. The publication in which it appeared is not known. The manuscript is a carbon copy at the head of which was typed, in parenthesis, quote, R.J. Rashtuni, Western Shoshone Mission, Owyhee, Nevada, unquote. He related to me the circumstances of its publication. He was advised that he ought not to give the impression that his views on Indian policy represented the position of the Presbyterian Church's mission board, so he published it under the pseudonym, quote, Monty Ray, unquote. This name must have been added later by the editors, as it does not appear on the existent copy. His third-person quotation of, quote, missionary R.J. Rashtuni, unquote, then, represents the young minister's tongue-in-cheek signature of the article. Mark R. Rashtuni. If any Indians heard Dean Russell's speech at Billings, Montana last January, they were probably disturbed by the comparison he drew between Indian and Negro history. Freedom for Negro slaves, he said, was sincerely believed by many slaveholders to be a heartless step. They argued that the, quote, dumb, ignorant slaves, unquote, would starve to death unless their welfare was guaranteed by their masters. But the slaves were set free, Russell pointed out, homeless, jobless, without education, old, crippled and sick, children and adults, without exception or any guarantee of help. Yet in less than half a century, quote, they are about as self-supporting and responsible as other American citizens, unquote, and have demonstrated their ability to deal with the problems that remain. The once proud American Indians, who repeatedly demonstrated their ability to compete economically with white rivals, and who militarily made the U.S. Army look ridiculous time and again for a century, is today, quote, less self-supporting and more dependent on government aid, unquote, requiring 12,000 federal employees to care for them, remaining as wards of a government and people that have no innate superiority to them. To an Indian, no other comparison could have been more painful. Through the years, he has comforted himself in defeat by the frequent reminder that, unlike the Negro, he refused to submit to slavery to the white man, preferring death. Although this ignores the obvious fact that the Negro submitted only to rebel repeatedly and bitterly, and triumphing in defeat transmuted his experience into some of the world's finest songs, it is true that the Indian refused to become the white man's slave. Indians had previously enslaved one another, prisoners of war and of raiding parties being bought and sold as a steady source of cheap labor. But Indian slavery, being more subject to the fortunes of war, amenable to ransom, and at times advancement in the new tribe, lacked either the permanency or the rigors of the white man's order. The Spanish conquerors soon found that many Indians chose suicide, practiced infanticide, mothers killing their sons rather than seeing them enslaved, even abstaining from sex so as to end their bloodline and its sufferings. In the Indies, as well as North America, men soon turned to other sources for slave labor. The Indian simply would not do. Long before Patrick Henry, the Indian had declared, quote, give me liberty or give me death, unquote, and he had not hesitated repeatedly to accept death when it remained his only choice. Yet today, after more than a century of reservation life, the Indian service justifies its existence by asserting that the Indian is unfit for the rigors of a free, competitive life and more and more money is needed to care for him, and, in fact, to prevent his actual starvation in some cases. If this annual assertion of the Indian service is true, then the real century of dishonor is not the hundred years of conquest, massacre, and robbery, 
for the Indians survived that with a bloody dignity and honor. But the century of welfare economy on the reservation, which has turned a proud, independent people into incompetents who must be wards of the government. For no other word than incompetency can adequately summarize the Indian Service's assertion regarding Indians and its justification for its continuing protective care of them. It would be wrong, of course, to assume that the Indian Service is made up of conniving men whose one purpose is to defraud or use the Indians. In the early days, there were serious cases of theft and abuse, but for many years the Indian Service has been no different in its makeup than any other branch of government service. It has its rascals, its professional career men whose only thought is their own advancement rather than the Indians, and its share of sincere and hard-working men. Its fundamental fault is its belief that the hope of the Indian is not the Indian himself, but what the government can do for him and with him. Its tragedy is that so many Indians have come to believe it too. This policy reflects an obvious belief that the Indian was and is inferior to the white man and needs to be protected, either temporarily or permanently, from competition with him. This has, moreover, been the underlying assumption of many self-appointed friends of the Indians. The Indians need government help because they cannot care for themselves except on a primitive level, which is now impossible. In 1887, J.B. Harrison, as a representative of the Indian Rights Association, wrote in a publication of that body, No Indian that I have seen has any idea of civilization or of the responsibilities and perils which it involves. The Indians as a race are, of course, far inferior to white men in intellectual capability. I see no reason to expect that our Indians will ever contribute anything vital or distinctive to our national character or life. That is not necessary or important. What is really to be desired for them is that they shall, as soon as may be practicable, be able to support themselves. Harrison, who more than once championed the Indian cause in cases of abuse, believed that their hope lay in government aid and the reservation system. Neither education or religion, nor both together, can effect this change or save the Indian without it. It belongs to the province of the government, unquote, he claimed, under the plan of wardship and training. Harrison, while believing that the government alone could accomplish this change from tribal to modern life, was aware of the dangers and saw that the Indian service seemed to require its own perpetuation, and that reservation life produced a parasitic Indian. He was aware, too, and respectful of, the counterclaim of missionaries that only Christianity could give the Indians the moral stamina and social impetus that would make successful competition possible. More recent exponents of the Indian service program have been less frank. It would be difficult, in fact, to convince many of them, including Mr. X and Mrs. Eleanor Roosevelt, that, in espousing the reservation program of enforced security and welfare economy, they are asserting that the road to freedom is through the lack of it, and the claim made incessantly for the necessity of government care for Indians is an assertion of their incompetency and inferiority. The same, quote, liberals, unquote, who demand an end to Negro segregation, insist at the same time that the government-ruled Indian segregation is a cause for liberals to champion. Has the Indian been incompetent in his dealings with the white men? Has it been a history of unbroken exploitation of the inferior race by the superior? Fantastic incidents can be cited of the exploitation and robbing of Indians from early days to the present. To secure Indian lands, especially oil lands, Indians were sometimes even kidnapped and murdered but more often through simple fraud, divested of their property. Whiskey was freely used to obtain signatures as well as to exterminate Indians. Presbyterian missionary records cite the case of one man who, finding whiskey too slow a means to kill off the Indians he hated and found to be obstructing his ambitious plans, 
procured the shirt of a man who had been suffering from smallpox, took it home, and placed it on the roadside where an Indian would be sure to pick it up, thereby laying low a tribe. On the other hand, whites were, at times, defrauded by Indians who sold land belonging to another tribe, necessitating repurchases. And at the present, contrary to popular impression, many traders are skinned by Indian customers, who know that they have the -the on-the-reservation trader at a disadvantage and are not hesitant about using it. The many tales of Indian oppression can be paralleled by a similar mistreatment of many immigrant groups, especially Orientals on the Pacific coast, and matched fully by the history of the American Negro, whose origin was no less, quote, primitive, unquote. Yet all those groups, learning from unhappy experiences, made rapid strides to self-sufficiency and competitive equality. The Indian, protected at each point, with the advent of the reservation system, soon lost his competitive ability. The oppression of the Indians has a long history, and is a disgraceful part of the American record. But even here, the culpability of the white settlers has sometimes been overdrawn. When trouble arose, it was generally created by the worst elements on both sides, and all were drawn into it. From the beginning, Indian traders mainly tried to be friendly, and reminded their people of the vastness of the country and the opportunity possible for all to live together. From the very beginning, the colonists had a friendly and missionary purpose, contrary to the popular jibe that they first fell on their knees and then fell on the Indians. The famous missionary John Eliot, who was neither alone in his work nor the first, soon had fifteen towns of, quote, praying Indians, unquote, of demonstrable character living very much the same pattern of Christian and economic existence as their English neighbors. Indians and white alike served on the jury that tried the Indian murderers of Usosman in the event that preceded King Philip's war. Then, as in the case of future conflicts, both good whites and especially good Indians, who were frequently wiped out, suffered in the war that followed. The troubles generally began with little things. Settlers' cattle straying into Indian cornfields, Indians, quote, invading, unquote, settled country, to exercise ancient hunting rights, unscrupulous frontiersmen and traders using whiskey to gain their ends, Indian hotheads violating treaties, whites responding to Indian scalping, torture, and mutilation with self-righteous savagery, until the hard-won peace earlier established by the reputable men on both sides was again engulfed in blood. This was the pattern of conflict. Later, the government entered the picture by abusing treaties. To this was added abuse by law once the Indian was vanquished. Resentment and bitterness lingered among many Indians, providing a fertile source of support for unscrupulous would-be Indian leaders, and for white men as well who milked, and still milk, the Indians by posing as their champions as they play on the ancient grievances. Despite this, the Indian leaders themselves were uniformly ready to bury the hatchet. They were astute and practical men, and saw no point in harping on the tales of wrongs and horror when the logical solution was a peaceful union with the invader. Christian Indians demonstrated the profound character of their faith by an act of forgiveness which Christian whites did not always match. The beautiful words cut into the foundation stone of the Bacone College Chapel, words which understate the horror of the Delaware story, are a monument to this faith. We have been broken up and moved six times. We have been despoiled of our property. We thought when we moved across the Missouri River and had paid for our homes in Kansas, we were safe. But in a few years, the white men wanted our country. We had good farms, built comfortable homes and big barns. We had schools for our children and churches where we listened to the same gospel the white man listens to. The white man came into our country from Missouri and drove our cattle and horses away. And if our people followed them, they were killed. We try to forget these things. 
but we would not forget that the white man brought us the blessed gospel of Christ, the Christian's hope. This more than pays for all we have suffered. Charles Journey Eek, Chief of the Delawares, April 1886 Journey Eek's words point up a fact consistently ignored in our time, the manifest competitive ability of the pre-reservation Indian. In some instances, foreign observers deemed the Indians greatly superior to their white neighbor. The California Indian is as good an illustration of this competitive ability as any, because while reputed to be the, quote, lowest, unquote, tribes of all, he maintained himself competitively under especially difficult circumstances. As S.F. Cook has shown in his study of the conflict between the California Indian and white civilization, the Indian manifested his ability both in resistance and in adaptation. The Indian leader, Estanislao, proved to be more than a match for the Spanish forces, while the Rancheria Indians quickly became part of the new order without losing their identity. The Anglo-American invasion of California after the discovery of gold followed a pattern of illumination of Indians, either through extermination or, later, isolation on reservations. The Indian now had to compete against overwhelming numerical odds. In the early years of mining, he competed successfully with the Anglo-American miner, only to be driven from the field, as were the Chinese also. Indian children were enslaved for labor, women for sexual purposes, and men killed as trespassing animals. The Indian culture and society were destroyed, and the Indians' only hope of existence became competitive free labor, where they readily established themselves as agricultural workers, as stock tenders on ranches, longshoresmen, dockhands, trappers, and in every field of unskilled labor, very much after the manner of most immigrant groups, showing the same capacity for advancement. Before the 1850s were over, the brutal conditions of the early mining years gave way, and other groups, such as the Chinese, became the underdogs of California. The mistreated Okies of the Depression years were only another of a long line of, quote, aliens, unquote, to California, who were exploited and abused by residents of that state. The creation of reservations channeled the development of Indian life into a direction different from that of the later groups, and fostered dependency on the government rather than a continuing competition with Anglo-American California. As Cook has stated, quote, if the aboriginal population found by experience making the whites give food was more conducive to ultimate survival than taking it from them by theft or physical force, then that population had worked out the best possible adaptation to the existing environment. Viewed in this light, the, quote, slothful, unquote, quote, sinful, unquote, behavior of the California Indian becomes another of the not-too-numerous evidences that the Indian was able to compete adaptively with the white race, unquote. Early resistance by the Indians trying to re-establish their own society soon gave way to an acceptance of the easier life. The reservation, then, was the order to which the Indian quickly adapted himself. The Negro, compelled to work out his own salvation, adapted himself to the rigors of competitive life by establishing himself first as a good unskilled laborer, and then increasingly as a skilled or professional man, able to meet any challenge and defend his own rights. The Indian, compelled in the beginning to enter the reservation, meanwhile, has increasingly lost his competitive ability in his isolation. More than that, he cannot compete with his fellow Indian beyond a very limited extent. His land holding is limited, the right of purchase of a failing Indian's land generally impossible, and the operation of the normal competitive cause and effect generally nullified by federal security provisions. Added to this is the stultifying handicap that a sizable segment of the government and public opinion prefers him as a blanket Indian, 
and pays more attention to him thus, and yields more approval to a now meaningless Indian dance or to a ceremony wherein a politician or a movie star is made an honorary Indian with a war bonnet, than to his solid accomplishments in agriculture or education. Not a few missionaries and progressive Indian service employees have been charged with, quote, spoiling, unquote, the Indian, by destroying old superstitions and instituting modern conveniences. The Indian must be maintained a primitive man to satisfy the extensive neurotic rejection of the problems of modern life by modern Americans. The policy of former Indian Commissioner John Collier has been decisive in recent years. Indian culture must be preserved, Collier has maintained, because, quote, they had what the world has lost, and must have again lest it die. That golden age, could we make it our own, there would be an eternally inexhaustible earth and a forever lasting peace. Unquote. The old 18th century utopianism regarding natural man and natural religion has its full flower in Collier and his followers, and more than that, an equation of peace and security with tribalism and collectivism. Man's only hope is a return to this primitive worldview. Quote, so the Indian record is the bearer of one great message to the world. Through his society, and only through his society, man experiences greatness. Unquote. Here, the pattern of the New Deal Indian experiment is clear. The older reservation policy aimed at assimilation into competitive American life, although acting on the fallacy that the road to competitive equality lay through protection and the elimination of competition. With Collier, a recreation of Indian society was attempted. Indian society had been collective and communal in some instances, but many tribes not only had private ownership, but an even more highly developed sense of property than contemporary man. Most tribes emphasized self-reliance, independence, and leadership in their customs and rituals. Collier, however, tried to force the communalism of certain Southwest tribes on all Indians of the United States. It was blandly assumed that private or family ownership of land had never existed in Indian culture and that all holdings were tribal. As far as possible, tribes were accordingly reorganized. The complaint of the Plains Indian that, quote, they're trying to make Navajos out of us, unquote, well, unfair to the Navajos, had a sharp edge of truth. More than that, this new Indian policy was designed not merely as a pattern for Indian life, but as the guidepost for America. The old policy had been to Americanize the Indian. Collier believed in Indianizing the American. Only through the Indian society, he felt, was there any hope for America. Not by the free market and laissez-faire economy of capitalism, he declared in 1947, since his departure from the Indian service and in his The Indians of the Americas, but by the true democracy and security and power of Indian culture for ourselves and the world, we would have true democracy and, quote, the realized heaven on earth, unquote. Collier does not fall into some of his adherents' error of rejecting modern devices. In the early years of his tenure, there was some effort to revive ancient arts and crafts as a means of recreating the older and simpler culture. But Collier readily saw that, except for a very few tribes, that way of life was ended. The main drive of his policy, which included often extensive modernization of reservation life, was to recreate the mental outlook and the social order which he regarded as, quote, Indian, unquote, and to revive Indian religion. A modernized primitivism, fully in line with modern research, but with a social communalism and, for religion, a sophisticated animism, seems to be his American dream. Although commendable technical advance was made during Collier's tenure, welfare government was more deeply rooted into the reservation system. 
The effect of this, Senator Hugh Butler has charged, has been to make the Indian increasingly dependent on the government. And, quote, During the past 15 years, fewer Indians have escaped from the Indian Bureau into citizenship than have done so during any period of like length during the past hundred years, unquote. The fault, however, cannot be charged entirely to the Indian service, since Congress has consistently approved its appropriations and, therewith, its policies. The superintendent of any reservation has his hands tied by administration policy, Congress, terms of antiquated treaties, and by Indian apathy. Nevertheless, a sizable share of blame must rest with the Indian service, which increasingly reveals in appalling nakedness its central aim of self-perpetuation. It would be instructive to analyze Indian services' expenditures for maintenance of the service and its personnel, apart from salaries, as against actual money spent on reservation development. That the Office of Indian Affairs is primarily concerned with its self-perpetuation seems inescapable in view of recent developments. As a result of the Republican congressional victory of a few years ago, an economy move was launched, and the Indian service was asked to analyze its work and results. Accordingly, the Indian Service, in February 1947, reported to Congress through William Zimmerman, Jr., Assistant Commissioner of the Office of Indian Affairs. The report, prepared by the Indian Service itself after long tribal discussions, regional meetings, and administrative analysis, declared that the cost of the service could be reduced and the number of Indians entitled to its benefits curtailed. Zimmerman reported that Indian tribes had been divided into three groups. The first group listed 10 tribes, about 60,000 Indians, ready for immediate release from all control and wardship. The second listed 19 groups ready to function within a very limited amount of federal supervision, or none at all, within 10 years. The third group included tribes deemed unready for freedom for a period longer than 10 years. Here, ostensibly, based on joint Indian and Indian service planning, was a true picture of reservation development. But this congressional economy move perished, with the returns of the 1948 presidential election, and the Indian service then began reciting another story, heavily emphasizing poor and needy Indians, starving Navajo babies, and untouched Indians who desperately needed the helping hand of the Indian service. In October 1949, Senator Hugh Butler called attention to the fact that the Indian service was now asking for millions of dollars for the, quote, rehabilitation, unquote, of some of the very tribes which two years ago were supposedly ready for freedom. More than that, as Senator George Malone observed, some of its planning included the revival of a long-defunct reservation and provisions designed to perpetuate the Indian service's existence to the end of the century. Government plans for the release of Indians have, moreover, a habit of requiring more funds and more services than already exist, and, like Russia's five-year plans, seem to lead only into further planning instead of freedom. The important question then remains, are the Indians ready for freedom? The answer in most cases, unfortunately, is an obvious, quote, no, unquote. The withdrawal of freedom through the reservation system is no more the preparation for freedom than totalitarianism is the stepping stone to a republic. No more telling example of this can be cited than the story of a Nevada reservation which recently attracted extensive attention in the Western press. The reservation, with a far better-than-average rating, is bordered by a small mining town of 140 men, women, and children, plus five bars and a package store, the business volume of some of these establishments being, according to a liquor salesman, equal to that of the state's major hotel bars. The county grand jury charged that a systematic depredation of Indian money and property through the use of liquor was in process, 
and also returned an indictment alleging that the Indians had been subjected to false fines by the constable. The Indian Services Extension Agent gave a careful statistical report showing that 150 of the 200 Indian families were being pauperized. Cattle, horse bridles, saddles, watches, and personal property were being steadily removed at incredibly low estimates in payment for liquor. Three deaths due to liquor were reported in the month preceding the report. It would seem that to release these Indians today would mean that local bartenders would soon possess most of the reservation. Here, apparently, is strong evidence of Indian incompetence and the need for federal protection. Yet, no such conclusion should be drawn without examining the remaining 50 families, of which 20 showed marked progress. In two of those families, both husband and wife are college-trained. But in the majority, schooling is at a minimum, and some cannot read or write, so that education is not the criterion. No intellectual superiority is involved. Some of the most brilliant men are alcoholics. There is a high incidence of church training or membership among these families, which establishes Christian faith as a major factor. And in each case, personal initiative and character has been the decisive element. The Indian service cannot claim the responsibility for the progress of these families, who actually rely least of all on the government. The government has a responsibility, however, for the 150 families who are most dependent on it. The Indian service loans are highly touted as demonstrating the Indians' reliability as a credit risk, and the figures seem to bear out this contention. But the actual facts belie it. The loan, made where a private concern would generally not regard the risk as feasible, and with neither Indian nor agency officials using a banker's criterion, is often paid simply because the government handles the Indian's funds and deducts the payment. Or, if the Indian handles his money, he knows that the one debt he must respect in order to survive is the government loan. One Indian, for example, who lost most of his stock to bootleggers during a recent winter, secured a loan in the spring, had the extension agent purchase cattle with it, turned the new stock onto the reservation range where, without any work on his part during the summer, other than the usual haying, they fattened up sufficiently during the summer to return him a tidy profit in the fall. The security and lack of competitive consequences thus made this Indian, who, while working off the reservation for some years, maintained his competitive equality and sobriety, a ready victim of bootleggers. His land, home, and basic security were guaranteed, so he could live and act with some freedom from the cause and effect which doomed any white man who attempted to do likewise. The effect on character is obvious. Even reservation federal jobs are protected from white competition in many cases, ensuring a low caliber of work because Indians know that no one else can be hired. In civil service positions, an Indian is generally accorded a preference, and if he is a veteran as well, the competitive element is further reduced. To this situation, the majority of Indians have adapted themselves with well-known results. As missionary R.J. Rashtuni observed recently, quote, the results would be no better for the best hundred or thousand persons selected from any society after a generation or so of the same kind of welfare and security government, unquote. If the Indians are not ready for their freedom, and more federal protection will not prepare them for it, what is the solution? The first step would be to open up each reservation internally to Indian competition, giving Indians title to land and the right to sell to other Indians. The Indian service should have no right to handle these land sales because in areas allotment it has refused to sell, instead following a policy of control and repeated divisions of proceeds from use among an ever-increasing number of heirs until an impossible situation results. Many competent Indians today are restricted to a few acres and limited progress, while their indolent neighbors are assured of protection in their incompetency.
Once competitive ability has been established on a reservation level, the Indian will be able to compete with the rest of the nation. Where tribal choice or treaties do not permit such private ownership of land, the tribe, by withdrawal of government help, must be prepared as a group to compete economically with white society. There do exist such communities in the nation today, such as Trujas of New Mexico, where a Spanish land grant to the community has legal recognition in American law. To do this necessitates overhauling the Indian service policy. At present, the government is ready to do the most for those who do the least for themselves. A healthy exception to this is the Soil Conservation Unit of the Indian Service, which refuses to do anything except to give expert advice and only when requested. An Indian gets personal guidance only when he signs a contract agreeing to do the necessary work. Where tribal land is involved, the unit will do nothing unless the tribe agrees to provide at least 50% of the expense involved. Unfortunately, despite the valiant attempts of many officials, most government practice runs contrary to this. No service, health, education, irrigation, or roads should be granted to any reservation without at least a nominal tax to give the Indian a share of the burden. Some taxes do exist in many areas, an excellent development for which the service deserves commendation, but a basic policy is necessary requiring it in every department, in terms of a steady plan of development. These taxes should not be paid out of, quote, Indian funds, unquote, appropriated by Congress, but from the private incomes of the persons involved. Any plan of release should have a strict and limited time span. The best cure for any kind of slavery, after all, is nothing more or less than freedom. Finally, any complaining Indian should be firmly told, quote, Your old song that the white man stole the land from you is out of date. We are giving it back to you with more privileges, more opportunity, and more freedom than your ancestors enjoyed. But in order to hold any of these, you will have to work and compete for them even as your forefathers did before they ever saw us. Our best payment of our debt to you is not the money that some of you hanker for, but the full freedom of American citizenship. Nothing will give you more returns. We are offering you the status of a man, unquote. In no other way can the ancient wrongs be righted, and we have no right to withhold from the Indian that for which silent millions of the world hunger.